This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter offer code VULTURE at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm Gazella Mami, Vulture's TV editor, and I'm here with TV critic Matt Zoller-Seitz. Margaret is out on vacation this week, so in her place we've brought on two very special guests. We have Vulture senior editor and our resident comedy expert, Jesse David Fox, and computer programmer and Vulture's Silicon Valley recapper, Odie Henderson. Jesse, Odie, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Thanks, my allergies and I are humble to be here. (laughs) (laughs) So we usually start the show off by talking about our favorite TV moments of the week. Jesse, did anything strike you in the past week? Yeah, I realize again every year that I love the White House Correspondence (laughs) Center. I don't care about politics like at all, but I love jokes. People call it nerd prom, but it's really like the nerd Comedy Central roast. Uh, <laughs> and Cecily Strong is really good, so I wrote down my favorite joke because it is really good, which was, after six years in office, your approval rating is at 48%. Not only that, but your gray hair is at 85%. Your hair is so white, now could talk back to the police. <laughs> uh, Gazelle, what was yours? So I wouldn't say it's my favorite, but... I would say the biggest moment of the last week was McDreamy's death on Grey's Anatomy. And I hadn't watched the show since the second season or so. But, you know, I watched this episode. And even for me, it was kind of like torture to watch it just to to see this character who is dying and narrating his death by saying that everyone is operating on him wrong. So (laughs) it was like the worst, like little twist of the knife to get to the audience. So to speak. Yeah, so. My mom was very McAngry. (laughs) (laughs) Matt, did you have a a favorite moment this week? I did, and it was uh, a moment from Mad Men, huge shock. Uh, (laughs) The uh, conversation between Peggy and Stan, which was brought on by having to audition these kids for a commercial, which unearthed all sorts of issues, particularly Peggy's having had a child and given it up for adoption, and her her sort of conflicted feelings about motherhood, and would she have been a good mother or a bad mother, and it turns out that Stan had some issues about this as well, which came up in a very casual way, and I just thought it was a remarkable scene, and I thought the whole episode was great. It was kind of your... It was one of those Mad Men episodes that satisfies people who are complaining that the last few Mm -hmm. episodes don't have enough going on, which, of course, I take issue with. But there's a lot of (laughs) things that are obviously clearly going on in terms of action here, so that's nice. But there's also all this rich psychological subtext and a lot of callbacks to things earlier in the season. And I had forgotten that Jim Hobart of McCann was introduced way back in season one. Like this, oh. this is another one of these shows. How is he yeah. introduced that? He, he he tries to get Don Draper to come over to McCann, and he woos him in various uh, ways. So he's and been Don, trying for a while. At the he's diner? been trying for a right. while, yeah. And and he tries to get Don to come over to McCann, and he promises him. So he actually says something similar to what he says in this episode, along the lines of, you know, we basically they have an army. Like we got five hundred people that can do your bidding over here. 
So in a way, one of the sub-themes of the episode is grudges sort of coming to fruition and people like biding their time until they can strike back. And mm-hmm. like the most ludicrous example of that being the, the meeting between uh, Pete and Trudy and the headmaster, which is all about <laughs> an, ancient, an ancient Scottish <laughs> feud, which is a real thing. The, the Glencoe Massacre, you can look it up. It's kind of incredible. They didn't make this up. A massacre dating back to 1692 is what ultimately precipitated this guy denying Pete's child entry into this prep school and Pete punching him in the face, which I just thought was great. Anyway, a great episode, but that Peggy and Stan scene was really the peak of it for me, and it reminded me of some of the best scenes from The Suitcase, which is a lot of people think is the best episode of Mad Men. There were a lot of sweet moments between characters in this episode, like Roger kisses Don on the cheek. That was great. That was wonderful, and Roger and Joan are kind of being... You know, everyone was being more loving towards one another. They were being more loving, and it's interesting to see how they're loving in a way that is different from the way that they have been loving in past mm-hmm. seasons. And, like, the fact that Joan can kind of hang on Roger in a way that a sister might on a brother or mm-hmm. a friend on a friend, even though they were lovers back in the day. That was really nice. Yeah. And and you really do get a, cha- a sense that these characters have changed. And, and I always like to say that the characters on Mad Men take two steps forward and one and a half steps back and <laughs> and you really get a sense of that in this final stretch of episodes i feel like real real change has happened real progress has been made in some cases and uh, and it's heading towards something and i feel like they're laying it all out like they're putting people in relationships that mm-hmm. seem like they might be the you know maybe not the uh, the only relationship they're going to have from now on but like they're pairing people off like the question of is this person ever going to find somebody they can be happy with the answer is yes pretty much right on down the line which is incredible mm-hmm. and and i'm just struck by the fact that this is such a consistently bleak show that frustrates and 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 thwarts the viewer every chance it gets and yet if you really look at what's happening on this show they're giving people what they want they're giving the characters what they want and in a way i feel like they're giving the audience what they want although it may not be immediately apparent that that's what they're doing because they tell the story in such an oblique twisty turny kind of way totally do you think that peggy and stan moment hinted at any kind of romance between them uh, i hope not you know i know there's a lot of people who watch a show who want them to get together but I tend to resist this tendency, and God knows I feel it myself when I watch a show, to think that any char- any two characters who like each other should be in a relationship, yeah. you know? And I feel like one of the things, I love the fact that Peggy and Don have never gone there. Mm-hmm. You know, the show's been on the air seven seasons, they've never gone there. And it's much more interesting that they haven't, because you see they, their relationship has all of these different dynamics. It's like their brother and sister, their mentor and pupil, sometimes their mother and son, like when yeah. Don is helpless... And sometimes they reverse the roles, and it's great. And uh, I feel like Stan and Peggy, there's a hint of that. There's a, there's a kind of a sexual electricity from them uh, between them, but it's it's intellectual in nature. Like mm-hmm. they're turned on by each other's minds, <laughs> but there's no sense that they would be good together as a couple in any other way. And I feel like the show respects that. At least I hope they're going to respect that. You never know with this oh, show. God. Um, I hope yeah, not. I'm, I'm yeah. Team yeah. Steggy. <laughs> <laughs> Got a Steggy shipper. Yep. <laughs> I will say I envy his beard. Yeah. Mm. He, he he has the greatest beard on TV right now. Odie, what was your moment? Well, you mentioned sweet moments, and I guess I would have to go with Silicon Valley with Jared's Julia Roberts confession <laughs> to uh, Richard. It's interesting that they would even use Julia Roberts as a point of reference. But then again, Jared is kind of the only character in the show that's allowed to be vulnerable. He has a heart, and it's on his sleeve. And everyone else is kind of cover theirs up or completely denying the existence of a heart. <laughs> and he is just blatant. He's out there. I think in some ways he's kind of the audience stand in because he's not closed. There's such a vulnerability about him. And the way that Zach Woods, the guy who plays him, plays him, 
is just so sweet and you look at him and your heart aches for him mm-hmm. and then you realize he is not long for this world <laughs> <laughs> so then bringing up sleeping with the enemy and and my, my best friend's wedding and and pretty woman I, I thought it was hilarious because you would never think that these types of male characters would even go for a quote-unquote chick flick let alone know the plot of it <laughs> and use it as a mechanism to express their emotions, their emotions yeah. to each other i wanted to ask you about that the show is a it's a satire and it's sort of been treated as and i think it represents itself as a portrait of this world like a very knowledgeable portrait of this world i'm not of this world so i just have to take their <laughs> word for it like if it was journalism or filmmaking i think i could judge the accuracy of the show's world but Computer programming and and the world of software development. I don't know anything about that, but you do. So, yeah, I mean, where do you what do you think about that? It's a satire, so a little bit of it is, it is exaggerated. But any good satire has to work as that which it is satirizing. So it's pretty dead on. It's a little bit elevated in some situations, but for the most part, this is what they sound like. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's more profanity, at least when I'm writing, <laughs> and the competitions, each character is a kind of aspect of a programmer's personality some of them have higher parts of that personality mm-hmm. than others but if you you could put them all together you could probably get one program out of all of them coming up we'll talk more about silicon valley and louie but first a message from our sponsors at squarespace i'm not a tech person but even i think squarespace is beautiful and super easy to use it has responsive design, so your website's scale to look great on any device. And cover pages, a feature that allows you to set up a beautiful one-page online presence in minutes. Start a trial with no credit card required and start building your websites today. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code VULTURE to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for the Vulture TV podcast. Squarespace, build it beautiful. So last night's episode of Silicon Valley is called Bad Money, which refers to the money that they get from this tech douche bro, Russ Hanneman, played by Chris Diamantopoulos, who Jesse informed us was who on The Office? The, he was the cameraman <laughs> of the documentary okay. that was fired last season because he, I guess, when Pam's ex-fiance tried to attack he dropped the camera and he He comes up. on camera and comforts Yeah, her. yeah, he's the guy that came on Which camera. Which was a, a kind of an amazing moment, actually. Yeah, and then <laughs> so he got fired. But he was the cameraman, so hypothetically he was on all seasons of The Office. We didn't know. <laughs> and now great. he's a billionaire. Now he's a billionaire. He's a billionaire. <laughs> yeah, for, for putting the radio on the internet. ROI. ROI. So Richard ends up choosing him to be Pied Piper's investor in this last-ditch effort to not have to go over to Hooli. Right, anybody but Hooli. Yeah. the motto. So we have a clip here of Russ making fun of Richard's speaking voice and kind of interrupting him at every possible moment. So uh, I think we'd actually save a lot of time if we got uh, on the same page in regards to the budget. So what I need from you guys is to I'm make sorry, some... I'm sorry, do you really talk like that? Like what? Like that. Yeah, I mean, this This is this is my normal speaking voice. I mean... No, like, yeah, like, like, like right now, like how you're talking. Is that, is that real? So th- this one, th- th- this is real. <laughs> All right, yeah, doesn't matter, go, go. This is the same way I was, as I was talking back there. Keep going. At the door, okay. Well, okay, so I think actually if we went back closer to our initial then let's review our request with an eye for uh, the monthly burn rate. No, you should come here. Mm-hmm. Keep going, keep going. Okay, that, that's more in line with... Well, what's the address here again? I would just clear it with our... Hang link. on. It's 523... Oh, Newell Road. 
Did you get that? Keep going, keep going. Okay, back to it. Get a fucking pen. Go again. Say it one more time. The address is... Go for it. It's 5230 Newell Road. Keep going. Did you get that? So, Odie, you've worked as a computer programmer for 28 years, is that correct? 28 years 28 this July, years. yes. Would you say Russ is an accurate portrayal of a certain type that you run into in the tech world? Oh, Russ is more of a recent type that you'd run into because once the dot-com era came along, you had these people who suddenly became billionaires or millionaires off of an idea. Whereas before, you had to build something and it had to sell and it had to go through this process of years and years and years. This is an overnight thing. The funny thing about him is that he got rich 20 years ago. And then as Richard points out, he really didn't make any more money. And I love that the show uses math all the time. So as, as a math major, whenever they talk about math or when they show math, I'm always looking or pausing it to <laughs> And Richard is going through this mathematical equation of how much money, $0.2 billion would be over 20 years. And I'm doing it in my head, too. <laughs> and so I think it's funny that he hit it big and then nothing happened and he's still rich. So I think it's a little bit of an exaggeration. His, his personality, I find mm-hmm. a little grating, but it's not unusual to find someone who is rich and doesn't know how to handle it. <laughs> He's an interesting character type, too, compared to the other people on the show who are, who are such, like, they're all these really profane, often very chauvinistic kind of characters, but it occurs in the absence of women. Like, this is a world that is largely devoid of any meaningful female contact. And the guys lament this. And often the kind of the kind of contact that they want is unrealistic, <laughs> let's yeah. say. But this guy is something else. Like, he almost seems like he's remade himself as, like, this sort of cartoon alpha male with his car and his hair. And Oh, do you noted in your recap that he's kind of what Ehrlich aspires to be? Right. He's kind of what Ehrlich wants to see in the mirror. I think the difference between him and Ehrlich is that deep down inside, Ehrlich has a conscience. Mm-hmm. And this guy does not, so he's kind of the uber Ehrlich. And <laughs> he's also probably a lot richer than Ehrlich and probably doesn't have to do as much work. So with Ehrlich, who a lot of readers don't like, and I'm always oh, defending really? him mm-hmm. in the comment section. How can you not like I Ehrlich? Know. so likable. Yeah, he, he only owns 10% of Pied Piper, and the difference between him and Russ is that in some ways he has Richard's best interest at heart. That mm-hmm. He has a weird way of showing it. With Ehrlich and with Russ, they both have past with women that are not, you know, nice past. <laughs> Apparently, he, Russ is being sued by three women. You know, in the dialogue, he says two of them have a reason to sue him. <laughs> and you believe it. He probably was a kid that got beat up all the time in school, and then he became a billionaire, and all of a sudden, now it's revenge. So now I'm going to be everything that I thought I should be when I was a kid that would make me likable, that would get me all the women. And it kind of backfires because he doesn't have any kind of filter or even a conscious rather sociopathic right he reminded me of an la person that was like for some reason in northern california he felt like entourage and like silicon valley is like an anti-entourage where like nothing good happens they throw up anytime they ever try to go to a party <laughs> <laughs> like there's no women around even though they are successful it's like or the women that they that are around have actually been hired yeah at, yeah. at that party <laughs> they were hired to flirt with the guys you know yeah so like Russ is like what happens when those two worlds collide and like generally <laughs> it's that he steamrolls all of them Mike Judge is is uh, somebody who I don't think has ever gotten enough credit as a satirist I mean we go through periods where where we appreciate him but he's been doing this kind of thing for a really long time right yeah and I remember when I was in Dallas starting out I saw Beavis and Butthead 
as a short film and that had touches of this as well like he's really really merciless and i swear to god not a day goes by that something doesn't happen where i look at it and go idiocracy was a documentary (laughs) (laughs) you know like how many times you hear idiocracy mentioned much more than people who enjoy much more than (laughs) people have actually seen it yeah People like that that movie existed, but I don't think anyone was like, I enjoyed watching. I did. You I'm, I'm that guy. You're the guy. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, stupid humor tends to make me laugh harder <laughs> than any other kind. <laughs> Odie, you mentioned also in your recap that the plot is feeling a little repetitive in certain senses. I'm always questioning the intention of the creators of the show because they're... There are a lot of little things that you don't notice the first time you watch it that you go back and look again visually and also in some of the dialogue and camera angles. They know what they're doing and, and everything that you notice that you think is there is probably there. So I'm wondering if this is intentional and that this is such a callback to the prior episode uh, from last season where almost everything that happens in an episode happens again here. The results are almost the same, in fact. It's a nice way of bringing back big head back into the uh, <laughs> into the plot but it started to seem like okay Richard he's our hero and you're supposed to root for him and you rooted for him when he defeated Gavin at TechCrunch Disrupt but you would think he'd learn not to make the same mistakes you'd think he would do his due diligence before he just signed a paper for this Russ guy mm-hmm. yeah. without realizing even doing any research about him the mm-hmm. first time you see anything about him on the net Dinesh is looking him up that's how you know who he is but you know, he took $5 million from him. You know, Richard is kind of a whore, <laughs> not a smart one. Do you know if it's possible for him to pull out of this deal? Probably if... not. Okay. And he has enough lawsuit problems as it is. I'm sure he signed something. It seems like Jared is the only one that ever reads anything on the show. Mm-hmm. He's yeah. always reading something and saying, oh, well, this is this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, true. Richard is just, like, signing things away. Like, he never reads the fine print. And it's only two pages. It's not like, you know, software agreements that go on for 50 million pages. And so I don't think they can get out of it. And Russ kind of makes it harder for them because he doesn't want them to make any money. Yeah. He's like, don't succeed. It's a very studio system. You brought up L.A. It's a very studio system process. It's like when you mention that you make money, they're going to want to know how much. Mm-hmm. And the studio was always like that. You know, every movie's lost money. You know, the Lord of the Rings has lost money. Yeah. So right. if you have a stake in it, you can't get any money because it, all that billions of dollars is went to something else. They're charging then, everything to the to the accounts of the movie. And, right. Yeah. And so that's Russ's idea. I couldn't tell if that was smart business or like, because every once in a while he'll say something where you're like, oh, that seems like he's correct. He's like, oh, we'll set your burn rate and blah, blah, blah. I was like, oh, does he know what he's talking about? Well, no, he, he doesn't know what he's talking about in that <laughs> okay. regard, but he does know what he's talking about in saying that Facebook and Amazon yeah. never made any money. That's yeah. actually true in quotation marks. So that part of it was true, but... Richard's response was, I thought we were in business to make money. And, you know, for Russ, he, he doesn't care. He's a billionaire. He doesn't yeah. need to make any more money. Whereas Richard is can barely pay his bills. <laughs> yeah. So he wants to, That's why you get in the business. I don't know. There's no such thing as a starving artist version of a businessman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That's pretty deep. But it, <laughs> I hadn't thought of it that way, but it's true. But it's, it, it's interesting that you think of him as starving artist because... I lived in San Francisco for a short period of time, and like it was right when a lot of the people that are living in Silicon Valley were moving into the, the Mission District of San Francisco and pushing out what we consider like artists, artists, and it and felt like the prices, yeah, yeah, and it felt like developers were thinking themselves of like this artist of the time, and it seems like Richard aspires to be like a great thinker, where it's like, no, your goal is to like have some sort of savvy, and he has like no interpersonal abilities to run a business, right. and this is what the show is just like him having these ambitions. 
that are all just like, I want to make code that's perfect. And then next thing you know, he's supposed to like try to figure out how to make any money. He needs someone to follow him around <laughs> and be his spokesperson. And that way, basically, they can just be not like a yes man, but like a don't do that. I mean, what is what is Monica? Is that her name? Monica, yeah, Monica. has her own she, problems. I mean, she seems to I mean, I guess she can't do that. because She has her own job. But yeah. Like. <laughs> so you need to have he needs to have Dinesh or Gilfor mm-hmm. follow him around because they're both no-nonsense people. And, and the interesting the dynamic between the two of them, if I could talk about that a second, mm-hmm. between Dinesh and Guilfoyle is really interesting because it's like a Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck kind of mm-hmm. thing yeah. where Chuck Jones said that everybody wants to see Bugs Bunny, but then you wake up and you realize that you're Daffy Duck. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Kennedy and Nixon. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so Guilfoyle, from a programmer's perspective, I think he's like the perfect programmer personality he's cynical he's no bs guy he's just blunt <laughs> and he's all about this code and dinesh wants to be that and to a point dinesh is but dinesh has this layer of insecurity that Guilfoyle knows is there and always goes <laughs> after him so it is like bugs bunny and daffy duck daffy duck can do the same things as bugs bunny but they don't clap for him Right. And so he gets this complex. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, you know, Bugs Bunny will poke at that. I think that's the interesting dynamic between Dinesh and Guilfoyle is that from our perspective as, as coders, we want to just be about the logic and about straightforward, blunt, you know, very aphoristic and just that's it. You know, if you talk to a lot of tech people, that's what they sound like. I think sometimes it's an act. I know when I want people to leave me alone, I switch to complete techno babble and say a bunch of... <laughs> words and they freak out and just say, just do it. <laughs> Guilfoyle is, you know, it seems weird and counterintuitive to apply the word cool to anybody on the show, but I think Guilfoyle is the coolest character. He you doesn't care. He, he doesn't care. He's got this almost, he's like, you know, uh, Toshira Mifun's character in Yojimbo, except he's a, a computer programming nerd right. with no sense of hygiene. You know, he just, he's sort of wandering from job to job. <laughs> All he cares about is whatever is in front of him on that screen, mm-hmm. and everything else is an, is, a, is sort of an interesting sideshow to that, but he doesn't get too invested in it. And even the money he doesn't seem too hung up on. No. Like, not in the way that Dinesh is. You know, everybody's f- looking towards the future except for him, and he's very much focused on the task at hand. Like, that's where his pleasure comes from. Right. And Dinesh has this whole thing of, I want to be accepted and loved by my family, and that's an interesting little subplot. I mean, last week they had that with yeah. the cousin. And Guilfoyle just doesn't have that at all. Yeah. And so he's perfect. One of my yeah. favorite scenes was uh, last week when Dinesh was talking about how he's the cool one in his family. <laughs> that was great. It was perfect. And, just, and Guilfoyle's, like, Guilfoyle's so... like, even in Pakistan, I don't think that's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's like so, so spot on. <laughs> so basically, he, Dinesh wants to be Guilfoyle. He just doesn't have the heart to be it. And I think Ehrlich wants to be Russ, but he doesn't have the heart to do he just doesn't have the stomach for it yeah and richard he wants to be the leader but he just can't communicate and a lot of programmers can't they can write code but don't ask us to explain it and so i think that's what i loved about his character was that it's in his head and it's trying to get to his mouth and it's going through all these channels and breaking up and so when it comes out it sounds ridiculous he's also a romantic in, in a lot of ways that's which is intriguing like he just in the business sense that he wants to be in business with people that he likes and respects as human beings and he has this dream that he can't let go of and he yeah. wants to change the world but he really wants to change the world not like gavin saying we're going to do all the stuff to change the world and it's all talk and publicity and bs richard actually believes that i can change the world so the episode with Gavin, when he, Gavin says, so when you become a billionaire, you're going to be the same person. 
I thought that was a very interesting comment and an, an, an accurate comment from Gavin. It's like you're going to be corrupted, so yeah. you might as well either just surrender or get out. Mm-hmm. In some ways, it makes me wonder if what this show is really about, like underneath it all, is is how you can't really be a success on any great level in business without giving up your your ideals. You know, like I feel like all these guys in this house, to some degree, are idealists. You know, even Guilfoyle in his way. Yeah, yeah. right. His idealism is nihilistic. Yeah. It is, yeah. It's the idealism <laughs> of the Ronin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There yeah. was also a scene in this episode with Gavin comparing billionaires to Jews in the Holocaust. Right. <laughs> and, and that was I was. That's based surprised. on a real thing. Isn't <laughs> it? it is. That, that is, is based it? on a real thing. And I'm surprised they actually even went there on the show. But this is a satire, so they're going to mock billionaires. And this is very, very common in Silicon Valley and tech companies where people come out and they say all these things. What I love about the show is that for a technical show to focus so much on language is very interesting and how people say things and what they mean and how empty it is underneath it. So for Gavin... I think he's completely clueless. I mean, you get that much money. I think there was a commentary on just how out of touch he is with Mm -hmm. reality. And bringing it up, and people are complaining, and the guy actually tries to give him an out. The other guy that's on the (laughs) show says, well, let's change the subject. And he's like, no, no, I want to do this. And it's like, shut up already. (laughs) And then his guru, you know, the guy like this guy, he said, in the hands of the right people, hate can be a powerful tool or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. He's like the worst yes man <laughs> in the universe. You need to get rid of this guy. He's like, you're the anti-anti-Semite. Yeah. And I'm like, no, this guy is the wrong person for you, Gavin. That's, so, that's a recurring thing in Mike Judge, too, is that scrutiny of language and whether words actually mean what people say that they mean or if they're just cover for treachery. Right. And often, it like, seems like 90% of the time it's the latter. It's treachery. <laughs> treachery 90% of the time. It sounds really good. It's like a sound bite, like a Twitter bite. That's mm-hmm. what the world has come to now. You know, you can say a couple of words and they have more weight than the explanation underneath them if one exists. And this show likes to do that. Going back to the, the plot being a little repetitive of of the first season. Would you say that the comedy is still effective even if it kind of exists in this mode where, you know, we're seeing the same thing happen, but they're treating it differently in some ways and being comedically more still interesting? They, they still have a lot of things they can poke fun at. So mm-hmm. that stuff still exists. So they're not running out of ideas, that, like side ideas they can make fun of, like bro to bro that application which is like yo and i, I, I didn't realize that was actually a real thing there really yeah. is an app so that that existed and they're just making fun of that app and so i don't think they're going to run out of ideas but i think some of the characters are starting to repeat themselves in ways that are a little lazy mm-hmm. so with richard you would think he would know better by now what i'm hoping will happen is big head who hasn't really had much to do we'll see how he is manipulated and i think it might be interesting to see this kind of Gavin, upper-level billionaire, taking this poor kid and just using him for such an ill purpose and wondering how Big Head would respond to that. He's being paid $600,000 to do nothing. And that would drive me crazy. To me, that would be punishment. But to Big Head, he doesn't care. He's going to take the money. And you look at poor Richard, you know, he can barely scrape together a couple of grand and he's doing all this work and and Big Head's doing nothing. So I'm hoping that they're going to expand that and see just how the lengths that Gavin will go to for what is, in essence, kind of a rather petty feud. You know, Nucleus probably exists and probably still crush Pied Piper if Pied Piper exists as well. But Gavin can't have that because his pride is wounded. That's another big thing on the show. Everybody is so prideful Mm -hmm. and everybody's pride is so constantly hurt. 
that's why Jared is so weirdly different because he's not prideful. Yeah. And he's, you know, it seems like he's going to be the one that will survive <laughs> after all of this other stuff <laughs> happens. The question of repetition is, I mean, it is a comedy, but, like, is it a sitcom in the sense that, I mean, like, the Friends does the same formula mm-hmm. of an episode, like, hundreds of episodes, and no one's like, is Friends too repetitive? It's like, that's part of what we expect from television comedy in some sense. It's like, we're going to have these same beats, literally, like, mm-hmm. eight, and, but from that, you can then have characters do certain things. Do you think people have different expectations because it's on HBO? Yeah, probably, and also it's not told totally in a sitcom structure. It, it feels less like A story, B story. That tends to be pretty linear, but I mean... It's, it's goal-directed, too. Yeah. It's like they have a business which they want to succeed. Yeah, yeah. So there's, in theory, they're moving forward towards some destination. It's somewhere, it's like, it's it's not Big Bang Theory, and it's it's probably a little bit a step further than like what Parks and Rec was, which was, there's always ultimate goals, but episodes were pretty episodic. But it's still, you know... Your sh- your goal, especially with comedy, is like let's get into a rhythm. Like that's all you want to do, because like comedy is rhythm is like so important for a comedy. And so you have those beats that you expect. So then you can kind of mm-hmm. subvert that. And once people expect something, then you can do the opposite. And I thought the episode was super funny. Um, the scene in which Russ takes him to that steakhouse mm-hmm. and Thomas Middleditch gets to act having meat in his mouth that's so hot. Yeah. And he just, <laughs> I thought it was one of the funniest things. And I'm a long-time Thomas Middleditch fan, so to see him get to do physical comedy, because mm-hmm. we only see him like, play awkward, where he's, one of the, in my opinion, one of the better improvisers in the country. So to get to see him do physical comedy is just really real joy. <laughs> when people talk to me about TV versus movies, I always, I always say they're apples and oranges, and you, I don't like to say that one is superior to the other because they're trying to do such different things. But I will say that one of the big persistent pitfalls of TV shows is a lot of times a TV show didn't really need to be a show. Yeah. And I'm starting to worry that Silicon Valley did not need to be a show, like an open-ended show that could yeah. run forever. Like maybe it should have been a 13-episode mm-hmm. yeah. thing, you know, and, and wherever they end is wherever they end, and that's it. But uh, I don't know. You know, it yeah. could justify itself. But the biggest danger for a good show is that there's not quite quite enough there to justify the long haul and you get into a situation like that Homeland got into where if they had ended in on a slightly different note they would have had a perfect standalone self-contained one season show but they yeah. had to keep it going and then by the time you get to season four people are finally saying okay yeah I can see how this show can continue but yeah it took you four years to get <laughs> to that point to justify the fact that it's still going on yeah mm-hmm. and that's that's an issue the TV show we're discussing is Silicon Valley you can catch it Sunday nights on HBO Next up, we'll talk about the fourth season of Louie, which has kind of kept the show's darker, more dramatic instincts from the third season going. What do you guys think about how it's held up this season? And it, does it feel like people have kind of stopped talking about it? Maybe. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. It's we're certainly, talking about it right now. Well, it's certainly not <laughs> yeah, too shady. Yeah, so. yeah I, I like this season a lot. I've liked all of the seasons to varying degrees, but, but I genuinely enjoy this season, and I think it's because it is kind of gone back to the spirit of season one and the first half of season two, which is before um, Louis C.K. felt like he needed to reinvent comedy every single (laughs) week. And I say that it sounds like I'm dissing him, and I'm not, because I think there's a tendency, and a lot of television critics do this, they piss on ambition. We see this a lot. Like when a show gets, you know, too big for its britches, when it's trying to be too intellectual, too playful, too subversive, too this or too that, people start to stomp on it and complain that they're they're disregarding the simple virtues, which I find bizarre. That said, I like the way that Louis this season is doing everything that Louis was doing in seasons three and four when they were running these basically mini movies. Yeah. Like if you look at Louis C.K.'s filmography, 
I think he's actually directed probably five or six films if you count all of these multi-episode yeah, yeah. arcs. And Tang. a lot of short yeah. films, Including Booty Tang, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, and it's great, and I like the way that he's played with flashbacks, he's played with the tone, it's got this elastic tone, it's all great. Like, it is one of the great shows. I think yeah. it's unquestionably one of the great shows. One that very often recently you admired more than enjoyed. Yes. I don't think that's so much the case now. I love this season. I, I think I like this season slightly more than last, but I couldn't necessarily put my finger on it. I think it's just... You can only be an interesting thing to talk about for so many years. Yeah. I mean, especially because you forget that he skipped a full year and he's put out so much content. So, like, everyone has written about why Louis is great twice, probably, per year for five or six mm-hmm. years. So, it's just like when we say no one's talking about it, we just mean like no one's writing about it because well, even, there's nothing but new. But also, to say. like, even friends I have who I used to watch Louis with, like, every week. I'm like, oh, have you been watching the new season? They're like, no, I haven't gotten around to it. Like, there's not that excitement that we have to watch Louis every week. I think he wore people out last yeah. year. <laughs> yeah, I with really the, do. the Hungarian woman. Yeah, and also speak. it's like, you know, it's like when episodes start to have subtitles like part six, you yeah. start to go, yeah. hmm. I think a show can demand appointment viewing for only so long. He's now been filed into, I'll get around to it for a lot of people. So last week's episode was praised pretty widely across the blogosphere. <laughs> <laughs> and in it, Louis meets this cop who's played by Michael Rappaport, who also played a cop on Friends, if you That's remember. right. He's going to always, he's the most New York of actors, because yeah. you don't know if he's Jewish or Italian or Irish. And they yeah. always use him as the cool white guy that can talk black. Yeah. yeah he's just blackish like, last week he was on as that guy. Yeah. <laughs> so he plays a character who used to date Louis' sister and kind of acts like Louis and him are way better friends than they actually are. And we have a clip here that we're going to play of Lenny, Michael Rappaport's character, losing his weapon and kind of freaking out. And it kind of gets at this sense of discomfort that persists throughout the entire episode. Would you understand what would happen if I lose my weapon? I put a gun on the street and I lose my weapon. You can't lose your weapon. You got to find it. Okay. We gotta find it. We can't do that. It's all right, man. No, where right. is it, Louie? We'll find it. Where is it, Louie? It's okay, Lenny. Calm down. Where is it? I don't know, Lenny. It's right here, Louie. Where is it? I don't know. No! Where is it? We didn't even come. Louie, where is it? Where is it? Jesse, you'd, you'd pointed out that, you know, his character is named Lenny, like the character from Of Mice and Men. Yeah, and it's something that I didn't even put together until the very, almost the very last shot where, like, Louis is holding Lenny and his gun is still in his hand and it's, like, towards the back of his head. And I was sure he was going to shoot him because, <laughs> like, they are both kind of, like, simple brutes. They're just, like, unaware of their strength. Just a couple of guys with two-syllable words beginning with an L. (laughs) And I think in that is where this episode was a satire of police brutality in its way. It was a very subtle look at what this was. I think actually Aisha Harris of Mm -hmm. Slate pointed this out, which was, here's this character who doesn't understand how powerful he is in this situation, and he takes so many things for granted. It takes as much for granted as he can. And in the case of Lenny from Mice's Men, that literally could cause people to die. And that didn't happen in this episode of Louis, but there was that very kind of subtle wink to like that is kind of what Louis was getting at. There's a lot of dialogue in the episode that's not just about Louis's relationship with Lenny, but also seems to be about Louis, the character's relationship to the audience and, and the show's relationship to the audience. And, and essentially it's like Louis C.K. 
just bear with me here. But it's like <laughs> Louis C.K., the the comedic performer who is in charge of this show, is through Lenny sort of interrogating himself. Like for for this one segment here, Lenny stands in for Louis, the guy who has no sense of boundaries, uh, yeah. who's sort of shambling through life, who is you know a very not aware of what an imposing and upsetting and off-putting individual mm-hmm. he can be, is socially awkward, maladjusted. Like in a way, he's kind of encountering this worst-case scenario version yeah. of himself. And when he has that argument on the street with him, he says something which is actually a phrase, variations of which have popped up in a lot of articles about Louis, which is you don't get to what does he say you don't you, get is this when he punches yeah him? yeah and louis is like when i tell you something hurts, hurts me you don't, you don't get, get to, to you don't get that. to deny that mm-hmm. you yeah. don't get to deny that and that that really is a powerful statement and i feel like that's kind of the heart of that whole segment yeah and that's what people write about when they write about how an episode of louis offended them or how louis ck went too yeah. far or when any comedian goes too far uh, you know, Daniel Tosh went too far. Sarah Silverman went too far. That's what they Trevor mean. Noah went too far. Exactly yeah. right. And 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 when people complain about that, like, there's often this chorus of, well, free speech, you're trying to censor me, you know, which is bullshit. But, <laughs> but you know, the, when you say something, the consequence of having a pl- public platform is that now everybody else in the world also has a public platform to yeah. tell you that you are wrong. Yeah. Or that you're, you're insensitive or you're this or you're that. And you have to take it. That's it's just the, the same way it goes. free speech that you have to say. It is the same free speech for me to tell you it's bullshit. Exactly right. And unless you have a, you know, and unless you have a gun like Lenny does, <laughs> you can't tell people to shut up. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. You know, and that's the thing is he does have a gun, so he can tell people to shut up. And Louis just has to take it. Yeah. And, and it's also a sense, like I'm, you know, probably going too far with this, but that gun is is the sort of influence that a celebrity like Louis C.K. wields with his, you know, however many hundreds of thousands of followers. Yeah. You see this a lot with Patton Oswalt. When he, when he kind of goes over one line or another, he has this sort of flock of people who come into his defense instinctively, whether yeah. he sicks them on people or not. Yeah, yeah. They're always there for him. And, you know, some people's megaphones are bigger than other people's megaphones. Mm-hmm. That's just the way it goes. And, you know, there's there's a part of that to it as well, I think. Do you think there was a critique of masculinity going on here? We have that whole scene with Lenny talking about how women don't love him even though he's so attractive. And... <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> and I like how Louis keeps looking for an opening to cut, to chime in, yeah. but he never finds one. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you immediately go like, well, maybe that's part of the problem. Yeah. You know? But yeah, yeah, definitely. And this is a guy who is really incapable of having a meaningful relationship with anybody because he won't listen and he won't pay attention and other people don't exist to this guy that's the root of all of his problems and you get a sense that maybe he became a police officer and he gets to carry a badge and a gun and handcuffs and a nightstick so that he can make people pay attention to him he can make people interact with him and everything's going to be on his terms because he has that authority of the state it's a really deep episode to be as short as it is that that segment really right and the opening scene actually takes up a good five minutes and it's only a 20 you know 22 minute episode can we talk about that scene a little bit as well yeah it's the one where the asian store clerk who turns out to be the owner of this kitchenware shop kind of owns louis i guess (laughs) i would say (laughs) well he wants to buy these expensive copper pots and she (laughs) sizes him up as somebody who wouldn't know what to do with them yeah and she won't even sell them to him and he says you know the customer is always right and she says well not in my store basically and like well and he says you may want to learn something about how to run a business if you want to be in business she says i'm you know 20 something years old and i already own my own business so what do you have to teach me which is a good point there are episodes of the show where I feel like the issues that are being examined are maybe a bit too obviously issues that are being examined. Yeah. And I feel like this is one of those segments. He was well. I remember watching that, being like, 
well, Louis talking to himself. Like, there's, yes. <laughs> like yeah, it's yeah. so clear that he writes and directs the show when you have a character, like, give a monologue to his face. Right. right. And I think he's almost using him. And the monologue you're talking about is where she tells him that she is the future. She is and... the future. And I think, you know, Louis has done bits about how everyone's on their phones. And I think probably a lot of people of his generation see him as, like, he gets it. He's like one of us who thinks mm-hmm. the kids these days. And he almost was using him as a place set for the people thinks that he is the symbol of them. That he's ha- an old fogey, yeah. get off my lawn type. <laughs> right. so, and lawn. to be like, yep, I'm wrong. And here's this young, like, savvy Asian woman to tell me that I might as well just stop cooking for yeah. myself and <laughs> just die. Go, just, yeah, yeah, go climb on the ice floe. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, there's a sense in which every segment of Louis is Louis talking to Louis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like in the same way the stand-up comedian is always talking to himself on right. stage and working. Like the, the good ones, the intelligent ones, the honest ones are always working through issues. And it's a monologue, a continuous monologue delivered to the audience. But they're also talking to different parts of themselves and yeah. hopefully trying to figure out who they are and what they stand for and all that kind of stuff. And Louis C.K. has always been very good about calling BS on himself and on other people who maybe share his mindset. I do feel like maybe there's a bit of a reaction to what happened last season where there were people were basically accusing him of being a rapist yeah. pretty much, you right. know, like and I and I actually loved those episodes of the show because they were a reminder that we're not, you know, to to quote that line from reality shows, we're not here to make friends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean and in the sense of we're not here to make friends the sitcom friends. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> this is not a show that's ultimately meant to be lovable and reassuring and even I, when the characters are horrible right i love i loved that rape episode yeah. <laughs> i was like i mean he <laughs> there's your pull quote uh, your pull quote i, I love that rape episode <laughs> it goes from him doing stand-up and being you know all pro-woman and then immediately going to him kind of in this rapist situation and it kind of gets at how a lot of men talk one way and act another yeah. way and it was right. just this perfect critique i thought yeah absolutely I don't know if this is an asset or a liability, but it's a quality of the show that I've argued about a lot with people, and that is that this elastic thing that you're talking about where every episode is its own self-contained thing, there's really no continuity in the sense that we normally think of it, and and the tone changes from segment to segment, the genre sometimes changes, and that means that everything on this show, in a sense, doesn't matter. Yeah. Like, everything's sort of self-enclosed in the way that a stand-up routine is enclosed. So, in a way, that's very daring and exciting, and it keeps us on our toes, and it makes us watch TV in a different way than we're accustomed to, and we can't judge the show by the normal means. But the downside of that for a lot of people is that it feels like he's given himself to, it's like this magic charm bracelet that he's wearing that protects him from any kind of really harsh criticism. Yeah. Like, well, if you don't like the show, come back next week. It'll be a completely <laughs> different show. Like, how far does that get mm-hmm. you? Yeah. I don't know. Like, I, to me, it's not a deal breaker because the the virtues of the show are so immense in other ways. And even when it's failing, it's an interesting show. But I don't know. Well, I think it should be. An artist could be judged by their good art and their bad art should all seem equally as them. So his failures, you're like, that still seems like Louis doing mm-hmm. something that isn't good. Right. Even people didn't like last season. At, at no point it was like, this seems like it's not in his voice. It never felt out of it it's just he keeps on expanding what we can expect to him to do with the mm-hmm. show and with kind of his voice i mean both here and also in his stand-up he's constantly seeing what one comedic voice can expand to which i think a lot of comedians actually have difficulty with they spend 10 years finding that one voice and then that's all they can do i know sarah silverman had to take a long time to be like what else can I do? And Mm -hmm. she's doing great. And her last special was awesome. But Louis is really a testament to like, I'm going to put out new material every year and stay in this space and see where we can go from there. The TV show we're discussing is Louis, and you can catch it on Thursday nights on FX. 
This week we have a listener question from Cynthia. Shows like The Newsroom that take on an industry have been criticized for not accurately depicting the culture they represent. So for The Newsroom, we're talking about media. And shows like Silicon Valley have often been praised for representing tech culture accurately, which we talked about a lot this episode. Do you think satire is more effective at representing a culture because it's more of a critique as opposed to what the newsroom was doing, which was a little more earnest and dramatic? <laughs> I think there's probably some truth to that. I mean, yeah. I think of a, immediately think of Veep versus the West mm-hmm. Wing. I would say the the two worlds are about equally realistic or unrealistic in terms of like what could actually happen. Mm-hmm. But the earnestness of the West Wing, there were a lot of policy details that were accurate, but ultimately it was it was about ennobling and uplifting the profession of public service. Mm-hmm. And satire doesn't have to trouble itself with that. It can just no. be mean. Right. <laughs> it must be mean, but it still has to be a good depiction of what it is satirizing. So mm-hmm. Blazing Saddles is a credible Western, in addition to being you know ridiculous. The problem is a lot of people are expecting realism from a place where there really shouldn't be this complete and utter realism and nothing can be wrong and nothing can be exaggerated. There was this complaint, you know, oh, well, this isn't exactly how it was. But if it were exactly as it were, then why would you watch it? If I had to sit and watch a program where people are writing code all day, Mm -hmm. if I could see the screen, it might be exciting. (laughs) Watching them type is not going to be exciting. So you have to do something else to kind of bring it in. A show like Veep or a show like Silicon Valley, it doesn't push you away, but at the same time, it doesn't turn its back on what it's actually trying to do. There's still a lot of technology and, and that type of talk in the show, and every so often someone will pop up and give you a little brief explanation of whatever it is. And I don't think that works. I don't think you can just have it be like a technical manual. I'd rather read, you know, some smut. I'd rather read Jackie Collins than... <laughs> A technical man. I'd rather read some smut, the <laughs> Odie Henderson story. Exactly. <laughs> but I, I mean, I think comedy has an ability to kind of get at a, a realer truth by kind of finding at us are at a more primal state than maybe a more earnest thing would do that's a little bit more removed. Well, Jesse, Odie, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Please let us know what you think of the show. You'll find us on Twitter at Vulture, and you can email us any questions or comments at tvquestions@vulture.com. Our producer is Sarah Abdurrahman. Our senior producer is Laura Mayer. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. That's P-A-N-O-P-L-Y. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can catch me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Matt Zoller Sites. You can reach me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Sites. I'm Odie Henderson, and I'm at The Odinator, O-D-I-E-N-A-T-O-R. I'm Jesse David Fox, and I am at Jesse David Fox. And you can catch Matt, Margaret, and I again here next week. Thanks for listening.